Thanks, guys. Can I encourage you to keep your Bibles open, but go back to the Luke passage, uh, Luke 6, verse 17, page 1570. I just remembered as we um, uh, meet together as God's people, I forgot to let the people on live stream know that a little later on we'll be sharing in the Lord's Supper, and so make sure you've got something that you can share with, something to eat and drink you can join us with. Well, as we look at God's Word this morning, you might feel a little confused, or maybe you should feel a little conflicted. Uh, our, Our heart's desire and what God's Word says, you might find are quite different. How about I pray for us as we look at the Word Bible this morning? Uh, Pray that God's word and his spirit might work in our hearts. Lord, help me to be clear with your word. Uh, Lord, help us to understand the implications of having a kingdom message. Help us, Lord, to be people who seek after your approval. Help us to be people who value everything else in light of the kingdom. And we ask this, Lord, in your name. Amen. Let's ask ourselves an honest question. Which one among us here, or who among us here, really likes to be poor, or hungry, or weeping, or hated? Which one among us, we, or probably all of us if we're honest with ourselves, like the idea of being rich, well-fed, laughing and being loved. You see, all all around us, the air we breathe, the culture we live in, loves these things, doesn't it? I love them. You love them. And as Christians, we are often pursuing them. Wealth, food, a good joke, and being liked. Now, I've been a pastor been a, for a number of years, been a Christian for, I'd say, most of my life, although my Sunday school teachers probably doubted that. Well, I can't remember many people. In fact, I can't really remember any one of us being driven to be poor. I've met generous people, but I mean driven to be poor, desire to be hungry, Delighting in deep sadness, love being hated. That's sort of your resume. Now, if that's the case, what is Jesus saying? And how does maybe what Jesus says challenge us as God's people? And how we live as God's people? Let's begin by asking ourselves, what is, what is the context of what Jesus is saying? Teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they want to get rid of Jesus. They don't like what he says. There's opposition to Jesus has increased. Uh, they don't like the message of the kingdom. They like comfortable, formalised, repetitive, law-given religion. And we saw the bit we've just, uh, we read actually a number of weeks ago, but the bit from verse uh, 12 to 16, Jesus has chosen the 12 apostles 
and the 12 apostles replaced the 12 tribes of, of Israel as leadership uh, amongst God's people. There is a movement from Old Covenant to New Covenant. There was a large group of disciples and Jesus chose the 12 as leaders of his people. And then Jesus goes with these people, the disciples, to a place where he can teach them. Uh, a large crowd shows up all over the region from Judea, Jerusalem, Tyre and Sidon. Now, you might realise, if you realise that Tyre and Sidon, that they're not Jewish places, they're Gentile places. So there's, there's people here from a Jewish background and people here from a Gentile background. And I think we can safely say that Jesus is teaching his disciples, this is what it means to live in my kingdom, to live as followers of God. But as he teaches his disciples, of course, we are told there's a larger group of people there from all over the place that are in the background. And next week we'll see that Jesus turns to them in particular. See, see, this is the context of what we're going to be looking at for a number of weeks. And Jesus says that some of the things that all of us avoid at all costs, or maybe the culture we live in avoids at all costs, when you look at them from a kingdom perspective, are actually not too bad. They're blessings from God. And some of the things that we and our culture seek at all costs, when you look at them from a kingdom perspective, they're a cause of great woe. Now, we're going to look at those blessings and woes specifically, but let's ask what does the idea of blessing and woe mean? Uh, blessing is about an inner happiness. It's just not a, a shallow thing. It's a deep contentment. It's been really fortunate. And in the Old Testament, blessing is when you're in God's slave. It's, it's, it has everything to do with God's favour. And woe, on the other hand, is the idea of I've made a really bad choice, deep regret and deep sadness. And it has to do with God's rejection and God's punishment. And it doesn't take much for us to see that woe is the opposite of blessing. So Jesus is teaching his apostles, teaching his wider group of disciples, those who follow him, and he's unpacking what it means to be a follower of Jesus in his kingdom. And what he's doing is preparing them for the road ahead because very soon he's going to send them out to be proclaimers of that kingdom. And the kingdom message is in direct opposition to the message of the world that they're going to be speaking into. The things that they comfort, that they crave a lot. Comfort and food, being liked and being happy. Well, they might find that the things that they're going to say don't result in the things that most people crave. And they're faced with a choice, which is more important. So what does Jesus say? Well, have your Bibles open, chapter 6, verse 20. Blessed are the poor, verse 24. Woe to you who are rich. That seems like a really strange thing to say. If we look at all of what God's word says, and we certainly don't have the time to do that today, in some places it seems to be saying something slightly different here. So you could go to Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8. And Agor, or Agor, the son of Jacob, pleads with God, says, give me neither riches nor poverty. Now, poverty is not something to be pursued by this bloke. 
he does talk about, you'll have to go and read it later, contentment. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, do you remember that verse we've just gone through? Poverty is not elevated, is it? What is elevated? Hope in God, contentment, generosity. We can enjoy the things God's given us. We're not to, it's not saying you must pursue poverty. So really the question we should be asking as we look at these things is, is God's word contradicting itself? Well, it's not, just in case you want to, you think I've gone loopy in the last week. What's the context of what God's word's saying? When faced with the opportunity to speak forth the kingdom message, it might not be well received and you will have to work out whether you're going to go light on the kingdom message or maybe change the kingdom message or whether you're going to be faithful to it even if it costs you the things that maybe most normal people would love. Jesus is not anti-rich. He's not elevating poverty. The Bible doesn't actually even do that on the way through. But it does talk about the problem that money can bring us. And here it's talking not about the problem money can bring us, but the problem when we pursue the values of our world instead of speaking forth the kingdom message. Trusting in God is more important than all of those things that may well bring the things that other people, sorry, that may well be the things that other people are seeking after. They may well seem to bring self-reliance and comfort and, well, just a fun life. And kingdom living turns all of the world can offer upside down. And Jesus reminds us, as the world gets turned upside down, he has, he is offering us what you might call kingdom values and kingdom hope. Verse 24, woe to you who are rich. Those of you who think that your wealth brings hope and peace and comfort and self-security and self-reliance, that you think you're going to land on the sun, you know, they're woe to you that think your money thinks it's going to do that. Achieve the impossible. Let me clarify something here. Jesus is not saying that poor people go to heaven. You're not saying that. They don't go to heaven just because they're poor. And he's not saying that rich people can't go to heaven just because they're rich. Now, we know that because Jesus calls us all to repent of our sin. He doesn't tell us all to give up our cash. But he does call to be generous, not to, be, not to save. We don't give up your cash to be saved. You give out your cash because you want to be generous because you've been saved. You see, Jesus is speaking to those already, his disciples, that are already followers of Jesus. Now, how might this turn our thinking upside down or maybe challenge our thinking or maybe actually confirm our thinking and bring great blessing? What is it that brings you comfort? What is enabling you to live your best life now? Is it the size of your bank balance? The security of your wealth? Your investments? How big your super fund's going to be in the next 15, 20 years? Are you filled with comfort or concern when you look at those things or think about those things? When you look at your wealth and the possessions that you own, does that bring you great security? Blessed are those whose relationship with God and whose hope is in eternity. 
Blessed are those who are looking forward to God's kingdom. But woe to you who think that your wealth brings you great comfort and security. I think that's a huge challenge for us as Australians. This is not fluffy messages, is it? Because the air we breathe says that our comfort and security is found in our wealth. In our culture, in fact, I think around the world in pretty much every culture, there are even false prophets who tell people that getting wealthy shows that you're right with God. The prosperity gospel is a deep cancer in the truth of the gospel. God's values are so completely different to the rubbish that some people in churches go on with. So here, what, what are you pursuing? What is it that's bringing you comfort that you pursue? What are you, ask yourself that question really. You know, is it the larger house or the better suburb or the better car or the better job or the nicer holiday or the larger super fund or the, I don't know, what is it for you? Now the Bible's not saying that it's wrong to own anything. It's not wrong to have a house or a car or a super fund. The question this passage raises is where is your comfort and security found? And what are you living for? How does your kingdom living affected by who you rely on and what you rely on? Now, if you lose everything the world has to offer... This passage is reminding us that because of Jesus, we have hope for all eternity. We have wealth for all eternity, but it's not found in your cash. How fortunate you are, how blessed you are to have, because of what Jesus has done, that hope. Yours is the kingdom of God. You don't want to lose everything overnight, but you may. Where really is your confidence, your comfort and your security? Verse 21, blessed are those who go hungry for you will be satisfied. And then verse 25, woe to you who are well fed now for you will go hungry. Now we've just gone through the world's worst event ever. We cannot buy toilet paper anytime we want it. In fact, we haven't been able to buy anything or everything at, our, at the quantity we want, we've actually been rationed. How unbelievable is this? And yet I don't know anyone who went hungry. I'm sure people did. Don't worry about that. They would have gone hungry anyhow. There are people who follow Jesus all around our world today who are not employed who are not properly paid and they face hunger every single day simply because they follow Jesus. You see, kingdom living may well lead lead you down that path. It may well result in that opportunity, in, in your most basic needs not even being met. And what Jesus is saying, as his disciples are about to go out into a hostile world proclaiming a message that's not palatable, that actually you will have your hunger met for all eternity because of this message. Let me point out some things that Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying that it's wrong to care for the hungry. 
Because once they're well fed, of course, they're cactus. You can't get blessed if you've been well fed, if you take that uh, simplistic reading of the, of the passage. And he's not saying that it's wrong to eat your fill. You've just got to eat enough so that you're always just off the hungry point, not your fill, because then you're going to be more blessed than those people who are really unspiritual who actually eat their fill. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that you, because you're hungry, will go to heaven. And we know that because Jesus died on the cross. He didn't write a diet for us. What is he saying? Well, let's go back to the disciples' context. Disciples sent out to proclaim a hostile message in a hostile world. Do you think everyone's going to like what you say? Do you think everyone's going to feed you well and love you well? Here's your choice. You can change the message or you can keep the message on track. But if you keep it on track, it will cost you. If you change it, people will love you. What does 1 Corinthians say? Chapter 2, verse 9, I think it is. No eye has seen, no mind can conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. Uh, Would you trade that for a roast dinner and a distorted message? No longer sharing the gospel. Look at Galatians. What did Paul say to the church in Galatians? Astonished that you've thrown it all in for a false gospel. You see, when we have this hope of what Jesus has won for us, we are truly blessed. We are fortunate for eternity. When I was a teenager, that's probably the last time I was hungry and unable to satisfy that hunger. But I've mostly been well fed and that's fairly obvious. Does that mean that I'm not, not going to get into the kingdom? I'm going to hunger for all eternity? No, no, my, my salvation doesn't happen because I'm poorly fed. But if I live under kingdom values, I may end up not having everything that I want provided every day, every hour that I need it. My, my basic necessities might not be provided. What is it that brings me lasting satisfaction? What is it that brings you lasting satisfaction? It should be our hope for in Jesus for all eternity. And yet the air we breathe says there's so many other things that we can find satisfaction in, isn't there? How long does satisfaction last if you have the best meal ever? How long does satisfaction last if you buy the best car ever? How long does satisfaction last if you have the biggest super fund ever? Jesus is reminding his disciples that actually you are offered something in the kingdom that is for eternity, even if you go hungry today. Verse 21 again. Blessed are those who weep, for you will laugh. Verse 25. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Now that might be a really confusing passage to read, especially if you remember what we were looking at a couple of weeks ago. Because a couple of weeks ago Jesus said, that it's, when he's there, it's time to celebrate, not to mourn, not to fast. So what is he saying here? Well, again, remember the context. As you go out to proclaim the kingdom message, that the good news of the kingdom is the language that Luke uses, that will cause you great sadness. 
Why? Because the kingdom message affects people's eternity. And some people reject it. Even those that you love deeply reject it. Remember Jesus weeping over Jerusalem? Because they've rejected their only means of salvation. Following Jesus is not a party yet. It will be in heaven for all eternity, although you might want to rearrange your definition of party. But people who have that hope of eternity would be filled with sadness when they see people rejecting it and missing out on it, wouldn't they? What is it that brings you sadness? Well, I can say that my times of greatest sadness in ministry is when people walk away, walk away from the gospel. My times of greatest happiness is when people grasp hold of the gospel. I follow Jesus. I now follow Jesus. Uh, The Bible talks about heaven rejoicing when people follow Jesus. How exciting is that? Even Anglicans can get excited about that fact. Although that was a joke and now I'm in trouble. No more death or mourning or crying or pain. What do you weep for? There's lots of things to weep for, isn't it? I think there's lots of sadness in this world. But I think the sadness that Jesus is referring to here is weeping for the kingdom and for those who don't enter. Weep for the lost. What makes you happy? What fills you with joy? That future hope? Nothing can separate you from the wonderful love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How good is that? Blessed are you when people hate you and woe when everyone speaks well of you. Verse 22 and verse 23 say this. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. And then in verse 26, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. You see, as I've said, sharing... The gospel with people doesn't always mean that people will like you. And which one of us here is not affected by whether they're liked or disliked? So tempting to go light on Jesus because people will love us more. That's the danger you and I face. A slight twisting of the gospel message. The one that happened in Galatia was that second reading to the church in Galatia, that the gospel's great, Jesus died on the cross to pay the debt of sin and wipe away the guilt of your sin, but you also need to get circumcised because that's your Jewish custom and if you get that then you're properly saved and Paul writes to them and says, you foolish Galatians, what's bewitched you? You've got no gospel at all. I'm astonished, he says in the bit we read, that you're deserting so quickly that hope. 
The word of God actually teaches us and rebukes us and corrects us and trains us in righteous living. I wonder whether you really believe that. Or does God's word just simply get interpreted through our grids that just confirms us to keep doing what we've always done? Now, when I first went into ministry, I might have told you this story before, there were two guys at the Bible college I went to who said the hardest thing that you will have to do in the next 10 years will remain faithful to God's word. Best advice ever. They were spot on. Because in churches, so many people who claim to follow Jesus are quite happy to turn a blind eye to things that Jesus says are wrong. And it increases the longer you've done it as a church. People get angry when they're practices that they've always practiced or their focus that they've always had is exposed as no longer and not actually being even Christian or the focus of the gospel. What do you do when God's word exposes wrong thinking and wrong practices in your life or in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you just keep quiet to keep the peace? Do you try and speak the truth in a loving and clear way or do you just want people to think well of you? Now here's the good news in ministry. Actually, you might think when I said that that I'm talking about me. But I think this is saying to us, here's the good news in the ministry that God's given us. The only person you need to impress in ministry is God. He's the only one that you know. And how do you impress God? He's not impressed with eloquence. He's not impre- impressed with, um, you know, visual aids. He's impressed when people faithfully speak his word into the world. We'll read a little bit later on that Jesus is impressed when we obey it as well. But he's impressed when we speak it too. He wants us to be faithful proclaimers of Jesus. Well, you can't be actually be a faithful proclaimer unless you're speaking his word and putting it into practice. Now, if you want people to like you, you will not speak God's word unless it's convenient to you. What do we do with a section like this? I think there's a fair bit in it, isn't there? You think, oh, strike. I hope morning tea's better than this, more, more relaxing. Being reminders of how greatly you've been blessed. How well have you been blessed? This passage talks about how incredibly well we've been blessed, hasn't it? But it also sometimes says that we should be thinking, whoa, I'm valuing the wrong thing. Remember, it's salvation by grace. Wouldn't it be terrible, though, to start valuing the wrong thing and drift away? My bet is that for each of us here, as we reflect on a passage like this honestly, there is blessing. We are fortunate people in Christ. But there should also be, because the air we breathe and the culture we live in push us towards the woes. We should be that reminder. Maybe we are getting pushed closer to the woes than we should have been. How about I pray? Now, Lord, now, God, um, we keep uh, thanking you uh, that your word speaks clearly to our hearts Help us not to fall into the trap of just letting it flow out. Help us to help it to bring change in the way that we live. 
and what we value. Lord, help us to be like the Old Testament prophets who were not necessarily well loved for everything that they spoke and they didn't necessarily live well and live long for everything they spoke. Help us not to be like false prophets who just tell people what their itching ears want to hear and who have no hope for eternity. Lord, we ask these things in your precious name. Amen.